Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 39, How Medicare Integrated Hospitals, and it is a special episode to celebrate the 55th anniversary of the passage of Medicare on July 30, 1965. My guest, Dr. Barbara Burney, MPH, PhD, produced the documentary Power to Heal, Medicare and the Civil Rights Revolution. The film describes how the creation of Medicare was used to desegregate thousands of hospitals in a few months. Her diverse experience in public health includes working as a frontline health worker in Watts for the Los Angeles County Health Department, as a policy analyst with the United Mine Workers Health and Retirement Funds, and with the federal government. Dr. Burney is a distinguished scholar in public health, environmental justice, and the U.S. healthcare system. She is Emeritus Associate Professor at the City University New York School of Public Health and holds an MPH in Health Administration from UCLA and a PhD in Public Policy from Boston University, where she was a Pew Scholar. Dr. Barbara Burney, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Well, thank you very much, and I'm delighted to be here. So you produced the documentary, Power to Heal, Medicare and the Civil Rights Revolution. Could you give a brief summary of the film and describe what prompted you to make it? This was the height of the civil rights movement, and that's very important. It's important in many respects. One is that, of course, this was a period when uh, violence against people who were pushing for civil rights and desegregation was common. And so many people, both working in hospitals and in the civil rights movement, were very worried about that. And uh, also it meant that there were a lot of people who were involved in the civil rights movement, some of whom were actually inside the federal government, who worked on this issue and were very committed to it. And after viewing the film, one of the things that struck me was how many people in the federal government were very determined to help get equal rights. Did that strike you in the film? Yes, it did. It struck me in the making of the film. I mean, certainly before I set out to do this, uh, I, well, one thing I had heard was, I, I heard one story from a colleague of mine who was the head of field operations for all, for the whole desegregation effort, which I didn't know at the time that he told me this story, but he got sent to Marshall, Texas. And Marshall, Texas was Lady Bird Johnson's hometown, First Lady's hometown. And the president, President Johnson, was very concerned that all the hospitals in Texas, and of course, especially the one in Lady Bird's hometown, get desegregated so that he would not be embarrassed. 
So my friend got sent down to Marshall, and he was followed from the airport by these guys in a pickup truck with a gun rack in the back. And he gets to his hotel, and he calls the administrator of the hospital. And he says, hello, I'm Dr. Smith, and I'm here from the federal government to help you get your hospital. Can we meet? Well, the guy says to him, no. And uh, then he, the hospital administrator calls the president. And I don't know exactly why he got through, but he did get through. And he says to the president, well, Mr. President, you didn't mean for us to desegregate our hospital. And the president laughs. And he says, why, yes, I did. And Lady Bird and I are coming down for a wedding on Thursday. Maybe you could do it by then. Well, when I heard this story, I thought it was really, really important to tell it and to tell it to a really wide audience because I was quite surprised that, of course, I didn't know anything about how the hospitals got desegregated. And I had been in public health for a very long time. I had been in civil rights for even longer than that. And so I thought that this was a really important story to share and that it was a really good story and one that was known by very few people. I think that it was really important that this happened at the height of the civil rights movement because I think it did mean that there were a lot of people inside government who were committed to civil rights. And and even in a way even more interesting than that, there were people who were inside government. For example, um, the Social Security Administration was very much involved in the whole process of hospital desegregation. They provided many of the hospital inspectors. And these people, while they might or might not have been committed to desegregation, they were definitely committed to doing their job. If somebody explained to them that their job was to make sure that the hospitals were desegregated before they got certified to get Medicare money, then by God, that's what they were going to do. And they didn't like being fooled, which, and, and there was a lot of, uh, attempts to fool the inspectors, uh, which I heard from various people, you know, they, uh, white doctors would put their black maids in hospitals to make it look like it was desegregated. In fact, I heard this one really good story about how they put a black janitor who worked in the hospital into one of the beds and they forgot to tell him to take his shoes off. That looked a little strange when the inspectors came around. But there were many people who were really committed to this effort, not the least of whom was the president and the secretary of health, education, and welfare. And they worked very closely with uh, people who were very active in the civil rights movement. In fact, the doctor who, John Holloman, who was the head both of the Medical Committee for Human Rights and the National Medical Association, which was the association of all the black doctors, uh, worked for the Social Security Administration one day a week, calling doctors, black doctors, all throughout the South to find out what was going on and what tricks were being used. And uh, 
where inspectors should be sure to go in every hospital and things like that so that they would be able to see and report on the kind of segregation that was going on. Yeah, I would like to say that I found the dedication of the federal workers every breath of fresh air. And just so people know, you mentioned the National Medical Association. I think at the time, didn't the American Medical Association, the AMA, still exclude black doctors? Yes. So the the AMA, uh, there's two things that are really important about them. They had been asked already several times at a national level to force their state chapters to admit black doctors and to kick out, basically, the state chapters that wouldn't admit black doctors, which was virtually all of the chapters in the South. And they refused to do it. They said, oh, no, you know, we don't have that kind of control, blah, blah, blah. And and so they refused to do that. And it's important to remember that the AMA was much more powerful in the 60s than it was then. It was, among other things, the way that you got hospital privileges because you had to belong to your county medical society uh, in order to be able to get hospital privileges at the local hospital. And most uh, county medical societies that were affiliates of the AMA in the South didn't admit black doctors. No, in fact, uh, they were very explicit about that. They said that you had to be white in order to be a member of the society. In addition, that was how doctors got malpractice insurance. They got it through their local, their county chapter of the AMA. So uh, virtually all the white doctors belonged to the AMA. So it was very significant in the South that they did not admit black doctors. So, and That's we one thing. The, the other thing is that the AMA had always been and was until uh, the Affordable Care Act totally opposed to any expansion of government health insurance. So, they opposed Medicare in general, and you can see in the film that LBJ basically tricked them into saying that they would support their doctors providing care under Medicare. Yeah, well, LBJ had a reputation for being shrewd. Yes. So we have touched on this somewhat, but I'd like to know, what do you think are the most important and interesting points that you learned from the film or from the making of the film? Well, one of the things that I learned uh partly from making the film and, and partly in uh, doing presentations about the film. And that was, you know, we refer very often to the social determinants of health. And I was at a meeting where somebody said, well, instead of calling them social determinants, we should call them political determinants, which I thought was really brilliant because Social, by social determinants, we mean things like income, poverty, environment, education, 
uh, all the other things that affect health besides health care. And when we call those things social determinants, they seem like they, they're just out there and they exist. Whereas when we call them political determinants, well, then obviously we could change them. We could change the politics. We could change the policy. And that would have an impact on these things that affect health enormously. And I, and that's one thing that I learned. Another thing that I learned is that it's really important both to organize and to be persistent if you want to make change in healthcare, in equity, or in anything else. And that this struggle for desegregating hospitals was not a short struggle. It wasn't like somebody woke up one morning and said, oh, well, now that we have Medicare, let's desegregate the hospitals. People had, had in the civil rights movement had been working to desegregate medical care and hospitals for a very, very long time. And they had not succeeded well. And even in the, in the times when they looked like they succeeded, they were not able to use their success, for example, in court cases to uh, apply to every segregated hospital in the country. And it's the black doctors and their allies hadn't been really focused on making this happen and on continuing the struggle, they might have missed this opportunity, which was really critical. You know, the Civil Rights Act, which said that you couldn't get federal money if you discriminated, was passed in 1964. And then in 1965, we had Medicare, which, you know, offered hospitals an enormous amount of federal money and uh, the National Medical Association of Black Doctors and Civil Rights Movement had really been working very hard for Medicare and they went to the federal government and they said okay, now what we want in exchange is that you use this new legislation to desegregate the hospitals. One of the things, and I think it's an important point, you mentioned that it took years. And I am reminded, I saw somebody being interviewed, and the interviewer asked him, how does it feel to be an overnight success? And he said, I'm an overnight <laughs> success that took 20 years. And I thought that was a great comment. Yes. I mean, you know, part of what makes this film and... uh this struggle compelling is that the actual desegregation of the hospitals happened really quickly. It happened in a matter of months because hospitals weren't willing to risk not getting Medicare money. And so they desegregated. But the the struggle for desegregation went on for a very, very long time. It was not something that uh, Medicare could have made happen if people hadn't been working on it for decades. So, yes, it's another example of uh, it happened overnight. Yeah. It's an example of something that happened overnight but took 20 years or more. 
Exactly. So, again, this was also discussed somewhat, but do you think there are some other important lessons in the film for today? Yes, I do. I think uh, that it's really important to remember that to see and take in the importance of persistence and even persistence in the face of defeat or, you know, even when it looks like you're losing, you really have to keep fighting because there will be a next time. And I think right now is our next time. So I think that's part of the lesson for today. And I think it's also really important to remember that um, this is not something that's separate from everything else that's going on. It's part of the whole struggle and fight for social justice that uh, we aren't going to get equity in health care without getting equity in the rest of the society. And so we, we have to make sure that we remember to put this struggle in context. Um, I think another thing that really matters is to remember that policy matters that uh and politics matter and and that it it was really important for the federal government to say you will not get medicare money if you don't desegregate that's the policy that's not you know somebody's whim or something like that and it was really important that the administration of this policy be put in administrative process and not, not, uh, and not go through the courts so that some inspect, an inspector went out. And by the way, inspectors still go out everything, you know, every hospital must declare that they are not discriminating every single year in order to keep getting Medicare money. So this is not a one time thing either. And this went into the administrative process so that the inspector said, you are or you are not in compliance. And if you weren't in compliance, then you couldn't get certified to get Medicare money. And that meant if the inspector said you're not in compliance, then you weren't going to get money until you showed that you were in compliance. So you could go through an administrative judge or you could, you know, go to court. But it would take a long time, and you wouldn't see any money until you won. And chances were that if, in fact, you were segregated and you were discriminating, that it would be clear that you were segregated and you were discriminating, and you wouldn't get any money in any case. So that was really important, to to put the burden of proof on hospitals instead of on the federal government. And I, I think that the other thing to be learned from this experience is that it's really important to look through the leverage point, to look at what we have to do and how we have to do it in order to make things better, to make things more equitable. And I think that one of the things that's really important about Medicare is that it was designed to include everybody over 65. And we need a healthcare system that's designed to include everybody. You know, it needs to include everybody regardless of 
what race they are, regardless of their gender, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of where they were born and where they work. You know, we need healthcare not be tied to employment. Because as we can see from COVID, where people are losing their jobs every day, it doesn't work. One of the things about our current healthcare system is that even if you have insurance, the out-of-pocket expenses, the deductibles, the coinsurance and copays can prevent you from getting care. What changes do you think we need in our current health care system to deal with those? Well, I think we have to have uh, both universal coverage and first dollar coverage. We can't have a system where people who don't have money don't get care. And the Affordable Care Act tried to deal with that in certain ways. You know, it said that you couldn't have co-pays for preventive care, which is very important. But then somebody has to define what's preventive care. And I suppose there will always be somebody who's making some kind of decisions about what the definitions are, you know, what's necessary care, what's unnecessary care, blah, 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 that kind of thing. But we really need to have first dollar coverage of the things that we're going to cover. We have to have, uh, you know, you can't be deciding that uh, you're not going to get some something done because you can't afford the copay or you can't afford the deductible. And really, you know, most of the decisions in healthcare, which is not obvious from the way that we talk about it, most of the decisions in healthcare are not made by patients. When I go to the doctor, you know, I don't decide what kind of test I need. I don't decide what kind of treatment I need. I don't decide where it's going to be. These are all things that are told to me, generally speaking, hopefully by a doctor that I trust. And those are the people who are making these decisions, and they need to make those decisions based on what's best for the patient, not either their financial compensation or on, you know, what kind of insurance somebody has and what they what's covered, what's not covered, what they can pay and what they can't pay. That's just not an appropriate basis for making decisions about medical care. And unfortunately, I think you bring up a good point. Well, it's not unfortunate that you bring up a good point, but I don't think people realize how much insurance can influence the decisions and the fact that often insurance companies are making those medical decisions, not the doctors, because the insurance companies will override the doctor's decision, and that can cause all sorts of problems. Yes, I think that's true. And I think, you know, I I once asked some colleagues of mine whether they knew what kind of insurance their patients had. And they said, well, of course, you know, I have to know that because some insurance companies cover this medication or this procedure and some others don't. And so the decisions that I make about what to prescribe 
either in terms of medications or in treatment, have to be related to what's covered by somebody's insurance. And as you say, those are not decisions that the doctor is really making. Plus, there are the decisions that the doctor does make and the insurance company says, well, we're not paying for that. And then, of course, people can't afford it. Or, you know, the decision gets made, the care is given, and then people end up with, as, as we're hearing about, more and more surprise bills. Because something or someone wasn't covered. Oh, yes, there are many problems that we could discuss, but we're going to leave it there for now. I would like to ask, before we end, is there anything else that you would like to mention? Well, I just want to encourage people to watch the film, Power to Heal, Medicare and the Civil Rights Revolution. It tells a really important and dramatic episode in our history, and uh, you can get it either by going to my website, which is blbfilmproductions.com, or by going to the distributor, Bullfrog Films, also bullfrogfilms.com. And I hope that you'll watch it. I'm sure that you'll both enjoy it and learn something. And if you have a group that you uh, talk to people where you talk to people about these issues, it's uh, really useful as a conversation starter and a way to think about what we need to do next and how to do it. So I just want to let my listeners know that I will post the links to getting the film in the description for this episode. And also, I have seen the film and I highly recommend it. It was fascinating. Barbara? Thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Well, thank you very much for having me. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.